Welcome to In Detail, the show where we take you behind the scenes of creative business. You're here with Kate Warwick and me, Mick Maloney. Uh, Kate Fitzgerald, hi, how are you going? Hey, Mick. Good. And Warwick, you there? Yep, I'm the only one without a surname. I'm like Madonna. <laughs> Mahaley. I'm Mahaley Slocum Architects. No, I prefer, I prefer to be like Madonna. Oh, Madonna Architects. <laughs> I looked, it's taken. <laughs> Welcome to episode number three of season two, where we're taking a uh, running dive into the Team conference, which was entitled Trajectories from Memory. Is that right? Was that, was that the title? Correct. Um, brilliant. Uh, a, a very well run slash um, in difficult circumstances um, on via Zoom, essentially, or via some sort of streaming platform. Um, and yeah, the, the organizer of the, of the conference did a great job. So we're looking forward to, to diving right into that and telling you, uh, well, actually, Kate, how did you find the, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I had a ticket guys and I didn't have it in my calendar, so I missed it. And one of the reasons why we decided to do this episode is literally because I missed it. And these guys have been talking about this, uh, conference every time I've seen them for the last two weeks. And so we were decided it was it would be good to reflect on it for my benefit. Uh, you know, having it kind of, it kind of did work out, it worked out well that you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I got almost a you know a heightened version of it, if you will. Summarized and improved. And we should just uh, note the um What's we the are, uh, room there, uh, work? Well, we are obviously sponsored by Architeam and we are doing an episode about um, uh, the Architeam conference. And you are? Well, um, at time of recording, I am a um, the chairperson of the board of Architeam. It's all and crooked, so folks. Fix it. <laughs> it's, all, it's all totally above board. I have my... Um, uh, podcaster um extraordinaire hat on right now um and we are doing we're producing this episode independently um and because we found it genuinely to be uh, an incredible um conference with a huge amount to learn and some of us some of us found it an incredibly uh, well some of us found it incredibly (laughs) great learning experience firsthand (laughs) and some secondhand um but look, we're we're all members of Archie Team. Um, we're all members of uh, various other um, professional groups like the ACA and the AIA, um, and we're going to be talking about them. So um, those conflicts of interest that might arise from these sort of things, I think it's really important to be open and be upfront with our listeners about it. Um, not that it is a conflict of interest, but it per- per- has the potential to be perceived as such. So it's really important, I think, that uh, people know and people understand where we're coming from. Um, um, when we're talking about these things, but um, you know, t- this would be something that we would have covered regardless. So, uh, thanks for that, Warwick, and thanks for um, uh, no, nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. I had Enough. To, thank you. I was saying there's gone. So thanks we to are, everyone. Thanks everyone. to the whole world. Um, yeah. So we are supported by Archie Team, and we're also supported by Streamtime, our other wonderful sponsor for this um, season of uh, season two of In Detail. Let's should we, should we just jump into it. Let's jump in. Jump into it. In this episode, 
which is actually a bit of an impromptu episode that uh, we are doing um, in the wake of the 2021, the excellent, I should say, 2021 Archie Team Conference and is going to be a bit different from the rest of this season. But we figured we're here, we have microphones and are willing to use them. So let's let's chat um, learnings. Yep. I think it's brilliant to slot this one in in between our series of interviews and talks with various people in the world in the design world um, and uh, go over the all of the cool things we found in the Archie Team conference for those of us who uh, remembered to attend. <laughs> oh, what, wait a second, you, Mick. Are you aware of someone who? Uh, no, I was remembered there, to attend. Well, you were there. Uh, you you were there with me. We were yeah, both there. We were both there. I know that none of you guys gave me a call up and said, <laughs> what's up, <laughs> my business bros and girls. Um, you know, where the fuck It's a complete what? silence. Wait a minute. Have you just turned that around on us somehow? <laughs> That's genius. I'm a professional. This right. is what I do. Well played, Kate. Um, in our defence, we thought you were, you know, a competent um, <laughs> 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 responsible adult. We could look after our own calendar. Well, you were yeah. wrong, my friend. We'll never make that mistake again. You just send me your calendar, Kate, and I'll make sure I call you before all of your meetings. This <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, no, but it was a cracking conference. Um, it was. And this is going to be a great opportunity great. because now Kate is going to get forward to our, like, bastardized yeah. learning third hand. Yes, um, that's right. And it is going to get, I believe it's all been recorded. So for those who are interested, they can go and re- review all the individual um uh, sessions. Yeah. Use this as your cheat sheet to the ones that you might be interested in. Yeah. Um, but do check it out. It was brilliant and really well organized. Um, and thank you to all of the organizers who did a, a cracking job. Um, and it, and it ran very smoothly, a few little cutoffs towards the end of a few speakers, but, um, all in all for an online conference, that was uh, a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Agreed. So what, Mick? What was um? So we're not we're not going to do like a review of you know this is what all the speakers were like. We're going to do a review of our takeaways, the stuff that um we've been thinking about, and yeah. we're gonna and Kate can interrogate us about that stuff. Um, and we'll just uh, go through it in no particular you know order. We'll just let the conversation flow, and um, because there was a lot, there was like an incredible amount of of business related goodness. Um creative business related goodness that is totally in our wheelhouse it's totally in detail yeah um and uh there more some more so than others like um i thought that soil uh, was more of a, a bit more of a slideshow sort of esque uh presentation of the work which is excellent work um but i think there were i think you asked a question warwick about how is it that you continue to to get these projects or can you talk about some of the failures and um that question was deftly ignored it was it was really vastly ignored i so um to to give a bit of context to that kate one of the sort of the big um keynotes was is it jing um lu Lu? is that right yep Jing Liu from so uh, is it is it pronounced soil? I, I've always in my head pronounced it so ill. So ill, yeah. Oh, so yeah. Ill, the, um, I yes. uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> been saying soil. <laughs> yeah, like I've it. heard others say soil. Anyway, so yes. you know, Korean American based um, 
practice. And like in the, in my mind, like those are sort of in that kind of, those guys are in that echelon of sort of international star architects who are on international speaking circuits and they're mm-hmm. going around doing projects all over the world and winning competitions and all that sort of stuff. And I reckon there's like a real DNA to those sorts of practices. Um, she presented this um, multi-residential um, project in Mexico and I think did this thing, one of the things that I find like is highly repetitive in amongst these sorts of practices is inevitably there's a story about some manufacturing technique that had to be invented specifically for a specific <laughs> building yeah, right, because yeah. they couldn't do what they wanted to do with the material at hand. Yeah, um, And she had one of those stories about concrete blocks and on this project. And I thought, oh, there we go. Tick that one off. Um, <laughs> it was a, Beautiful. It was a very eloquent uh, structural solution with a uh, pentagonal sort of shaped concrete tube uh, that was then rearrangeable to turn corners to create this sort of uh, faceted um, but stepped facade for a concrete building. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, yeah, super and, cool. And but most people fun. don't get access to that stuff. But I feel like that's like it's an entry requirement to being on that international circuit. You have to have a story like that where you can introduce this new building technique to a whole new, you know, sector of the world. And there um, was that there was that humble brag that that building was delivered for two point six million dollars. Oh, yes, and you, you interrogated the finances of that, didn't you? <laughs> I did. So I took, it's this, like, I, I don't know how many apartments it was, but it was a big building, like maybe six stories or something like that. What? In, in we just had a house that came back in at 2.2. Yeah, yeah, don't worry, Kate. It, <laughs> and it's, it's not I smelled like, a rat there. it's pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> what did we work out was the average um, well, wage for a Mexican labourer? Oh, it see. was said in the presentation, I believe, I think Erica um, pointed out that somebody mentioned $7,000 a year incomes uh, for the tradies, and then I Googled what an average trading income is in Australia, which is $90,000 a year. So if you divide 90000 by 7000 uh, you get a multiplication factor that you can apply to the $2.6 million, which brings it up to $33.4 million, which is a more, far more accurate figure for, for constructing such a project in Australia. Not Maybe not even enough. It was... Um, to do something of that sort of, you know, find that a lot in projects that are in um, developing countries where labour is cheap and you can often um, achieve, especially with concrete and other sort of mass materials, create a, a result that is heavily labour intensive and then uh, that would be almost impossible to achieve here. Yep, yep. In contrast to Jing's presentation, one of my favourites was um, Simone Bliss, who is from SBLA. She's a landscape architect um, here in Melbourne. Um, and um, she actually, I think she actually went to high school with Erica, bizarrely, remarkably. Nice. Um, anyway, they she gave this very, um, I thought, humble presentation that talked about business structure and how she, and this is what I think one of the takeaways for me was um, about this very thoughtful, (coughs) um, conscientious interrogation of how she wanted her business to work. Uh, So so to explain, Kate, she um, had been working for a large landscape architecture practice for many years um, and when she and she basically left there to start her family mm. and then when she got back into the workforce uh, you know a couple of years later I'm not actually sure what the, the gap was she decided to do so in a kind of a very non-corporate way um, and that was to create a highly flexible working environment mm-hmm. 
that could be built around motherhood or parenthood generally, but motherhood specifically. Yeah, and she cool. also set up a kind of another thing called, I think, All the Other Mothers, which was like a loose confederation of um, sort of women in business juggling business and, and parenthood um, and how they could each support each other to and do basically projects that were bigger than any individual, any of them could have individually taken on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, some years later, has got a practice that's highly flexible. So everyone works super part-time. And one of the questions I have, which I'm curious to sort of find out more about, is, is that there seems to be this... I'd be interested to ask her about accountability because basically everybody in um, her business now and connected to a business chooses their own working hours. Mm. And the way she presented it made it appear that it was quite like unpredictable in some ways that people are not just saying, okay, I'm going to choose Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and that's just going to be the days I work Mm -hmm. that from week to week, it might change. I don't know how you'd run a project like that or projects, many projects like that without knowing when all your people are going to be in. I don't know if it's, different for landscape in that their timeframes are shorter. Mm. Like I think the projects are revolving a lot more quickly and sometimes that does really help. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether, I mean, we've obviously in architecture, there's the time in the phases that you could maybe apply, but I'm not, I'm not sure if that helps or not. The other part of it is about, part-time in in general so we have like quite a, a bit of a mix in our team yeah, um, um only one now but one of our staff teaches um another of our staff works a nine-day full-time but across a nine-day fortnight um our studio manager is part-time erica and i juggle parenting and and pick up and drop off and then we have two full-timers and one casual student basically and we've picked up on a couple of things. One is that two days a week, you're basically doing odd jobs. Yep. Um, and, you know, the day that they have, the person happens to come in, you just come up with a bunch of tasks and sort of work out, hey, you just cast around, has anybody that got anything for this person to do because they're in today, basically. Yeah. Um, mm. Four days a week is basically full time. And I was actually speaking yep. to another friend of mine um, the other day on this topic after the conference, and she said the same thing, that four days is basically full-time. You can run a job fine. Two days, it's obviously clearly um, just task-based. Three days is really challenging. Yeah. That, mm. Especially for a senior person that it's not yep. you're not around enough to be able to be across every facet of a project, but mm. you're around too much just to be the task person. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's a weird a weird position, a weird part-time We've thing got to be in. Seniors at four, which is no problem, and um, we've got a junior staff member at three at the moment, and she's finding it really hard to have that continuity and that commitment and being able to follow up on things, especially because the, the three days are in a row in the week. So, uh, so there's a two-day gap. Friday, and so really there's, including the weekend, four days of, uh, of things that, um, you know, if you get an email um, that can – sort of sit there for a long time it's um we find that if that client might have emailed or a supplier might have emailed that person then it sits in their inbox without them even forwarding it on so we might even have to set up like an auto forward on those days so that somebody else can come in and pick up the slack mm-hmm. yeah mm. but so i think some- that's that's probably the thing i would find the toughest is the comms 
it's not getting the work done. It's the comms, like, you know, the, the needing to be receiving that. Mm. Continuity is hard. And I know with the, the reason why the two-day, so our, our student who's at basically two days, the reason that we can't get him to help on projects is there's so much of a gap between days in the office that, you know, the sort of thing that you would give a student to assist with, let's say during documentation, let's say that's the window schedule or it's the the fittings and fixtures or it's, you know, stuff like that or it's the renders. There's too much of a gap and by the time they come back the next week around, the project's already moved on. Like you really already have had mm. to have had that bit done. Yeah. So yeah. Um, often actually um, unless the task can be finished on the day, we don't generally start it uh, unless again it, uh, it has to either be able to be finished on the day or not project based so if he's just doing stuff for our website or you know mm. or socials or whatever that's fine because that can just take as long as it needs but if it's for something that's actually project based it's too much of a gap to actually tie into a like the natural flow of a project hmm. yeah i agree yeah. It's really interesting. Some some of the things that Simone was talking about in her presentation, um, that she likes to use a sort of a cross cross disciplinary team of designers and non designers even, um, and you know for people like illustrators and um, people without necessarily a, a specific project experience to take on a project and then be the leader of that project, um, which I thought was a really sort of counterintuitive approach, which I was really interested in. Um, and the other thing I thought that was really uh, no, that, I, that I noted was that um, uh, that she talked about a studio sweet spot of seven to eight people, which allowed her to expand and contract and then collaborate with other practices. Um, and I wanted to see what you guys thought of that in terms of the sweet spot for an architectural practice. I have heard a rule of thumb that one person really only has sufficient bandwidth to manage six other people. Hmm. And those six people might themselves be managers, each managing six people and so on and so forth. Yeah. But you start getting lost beyond that point. And I reckon we've sensed that. And in fact, um, I think we want to grow a little bit bigger than we are now. Um, not quite sure how much bigger, uh, but we can already sense that, you know, for Erica, who's running the majority of our projects from an operations perspective, she needs she's going to need support for us to actually be able to grow much bigger, as in like some other senior person who helps, you know, take on the project management load across projects. Mm. So I don't reckon I can handle any more than four. Four people mm -hmm. in addition to yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's close enough to that six to basically be about right right and yeah that's probably partly because you're also running your business so it's not about just managing those four it's about yeah, that's doing true. this other stuff too yeah that's true which we, uh, we should keep that in the um in the questions list for somebody from uh, a larger practice and because i can't remember it's been a while since i've been in a big practice but whether or not that is a six sort of tree that goes down into those team mm. sizes um and uh and whether or not there's people out there doing it a lot more than that i suspect there are I'm sure they're right. It probably also depends like on a number of factors, like, well, how autonomous are those six people? Um, what are their, you know, like as an architect managing six architects, senior architects who are then managing six juniors, let's say each, 
that would be like a very clear technical hierarchy. But what happens if one of those people is a finance person or an HR person that you are still kind of, who still report to you, but are in a totally different discipline? Like that probably changes everything. Mm. In Detail is generously supported by our friends at Streamtime, business management software for creatives. Kate and Warwick, you belong to this cult uh, of Streamtimers. Tell us what it's like. Well, um, other than the ritualistic sacrifices, which are super fun, can I say. Um, for data nerds like me, um, I dig it. I dig the fact that I can see it all. I can see how long we've spent on any part of the project and I can compare it in so many different ways. Um, so I do like a regular deep dive, not during work hours, of course, on my during my time off. Because fun time. I, I do it for fun, yeah. Uh, and I am the opposite of a data nerd and I love it because it means I don't have to put things into spreadsheets and I can put them into fun little boxes that dangle around because it has an epically beautiful user-friendly interface. Thanks, Streamtime. Thanks, Streamtime. Can I just touch on one last thing, one last note here that was really interesting from Simone's and it's something that's related back to what we've talked about, about timesheets before. And she says that she does use timesheets to gather data, which they use as a guide to prepare fee proposals. But she said that trust is the, one of the fundamental sort of Mm. blocks that they've built the business on um, and that she doesn't watch people's time. Um, because she believes it, it's, it stems to anxiety over the timesheets. So she's not using it to use to sort of a watch a utilisation rate of staff. Um, and I think that that kind of opened up this dialogue in my own head about in my practice I don't, I actively don't keep timesheets because I, find, I found it so anxiety-inducing in my early days as an architect. And it's I'm because you hate order. I prefer <laughs> chaos. Thank you. I um, think we've established that, isn't it? Yeah, that's why my office and, looks like um, my office chaos. and your office looks like your office. <laughs> I had a fair bit of office jealousy going to Warwick's office the other day. Oh, really? Nice. Oh, I love your office. Your office is great. We're all great. Uh, <laughs> but I've, I found in my head I was thinking, okay, so there is people out there, there are people out there like Simone who are saying that, She doesn't agree with the way in which timesheets are kept and used as this sort of 1984-style monitoring tool for for staff so that we know exactly what you're doing at every moment. Um, And she she seemed very anti-timesheet, but she was still keeping them as a way of monitoring job, um, uh, you know, just just the sheer. B-setting. Yeah. That's how we do it. Because my staff are on salary, so I'm not – I don't use it to – I don't, you know, you I just want to know make it part of their at KPIs the end of every, and, every six months or whenever we're checking in on where, end of the project or yeah. end of each phase even yeah. how much time we have left. So we wouldn't have a meeting on, in our Monday meeting and go, okay, well, we've got this much time left, how much time, you know, where are we tracking against the project? We need to wind this up quickly or whatever it is. Yeah. I'd say that's probably pretty consistent. I mean, most people I know... <laughs> record timesheets most people as in in, you know similar businesses and most of them use it as a way of setting (coughs) fees and sort of (coughs) testing profitability 
Um, but that sort of panopticon doesn't really, doesn't exist really. But and that- in fact, Jenny Edwards from Lighthouse Architecture and Science, one of the other presenters, said exactly the same thing, that she uses um, a software tool to help um, uh, who shall be remain nameless because Streamtime, um, uh, <laughs> one of their competitors. <laughs> um, she she and, but same idea, you know, let's set, let's work out how we set fees, let's work out how long it takes to, for us to do things. But Point. It's not about, I think that's what makes it easy to use something like Streamtime though is because yeah, like I'm not hooking that into my payroll in zero. I'm just yeah. tracking it on a pure like project basis over here and then yeah. my wages and everything are over there. Harvest. Harvest. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say it, Warwick. <laughs> hey, we're still a free agent, so. <laughs> well, we look. To, Are we? To explain, at, at the time of recording, we've yet to actually sort out our sponsorship, which might be a confusing message to be listening to right now, dear audience. I think we should say the would, names. I would of, like of to think. So that. many bits of software in case we don't lure one in. <laughs> we're in the process of negotiating for season two. Um, yeah, uh, we've got, we got a lot of offers, people. We're, look, we're it's pretty just, hot. it's all, it's very yeah. crazy over here. Um, but I'd like to think that we, uh, you know, like our professional practices, we're not um, going to not talk about other things just because we're being sponsored by somebody. But uh, it's not like the ABC who refused to say any commercial name ever. Yeah. Oh. You can do you like that. I do that. Um, yeah. As a corollary to this comment about timesheets and sort of, um, you know, whether or not you're monitoring the hours people do, Mick, you and I, and I can't remember actually if I've spoken about this with you as well, Kate Off Air, about, you know, the idea of sort of um, profit share incentives and things like that mm. um, and how there's a problem in architecture about how you measure those KPIs. Mm. But I, I know that um, speaking to people who implemented that in other industries, one of the downsides of that is, is it incentivizes um, long hours yeah. because if you're taking a share of profit, well, then... I'm just going to keep on working tonight because each extra hour I work is going to, you know, give me additional income. Yeah, and I bet um, that feeds and- down your six-people tree as well so that if a, a manager's KPIs are linked to the performance of their staff, the, the impetus is that will be on them to get yeah, 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 as sure. much out of And so I think that's like something that needs to be kind of – I think that's probably a whole other episode for us to mm. talk about how you kind of set those processes up. Um, <laughs> but it's there are – it's, it's a bit thorny and it's a bit complex because it's hard in, in like in a fixed fee sort of environment or, or percentage, whatever, but a project-based fee, how to measure performance um, as opposed to like a lawyer who just bills for the number of hours they work and it's simple, you know? Mm. Mm. Yep. So should we talk about Dan Monheats? Um, yeah, heuristic. Yeah. So Dan is... Um, so he's a partner of Justin Cabani who presented at the Archie Team conference two years ago. And so it was really interesting having someone from Hard Hat again come back. So they are an advertising agency and they're very interested in the psychology of selling. Yep. That's their kind of their Be- bag. Behavioural science. Yeah. Um, and he talked about, I think, were they, did he call them psychological heuristics? Um, hmm. I've just gotten my notes. He's talked about the, they had 12 heuristics that they were particularly interested in and then he focused on three for yeah. the presentation, which he called the cheat codes for sales, which I quite liked. 
they're basically things that underpin, no, he called them behavioral heuristics. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're rules of thumb or even more than rules of thumb, but things that underpin the way people make decisions. Yeah. Um, and his comment was, is that, you know, you'd like to think that as the only species with a brain big enough to like make tools and, you know, invent stuff like we do, that we're incredibly rational beings that go and take every decision very seriously and think through every like permutation and combination, combination pros and cons and weighing up every decision before finally arriving at a very rational and logical decision for everything that happens in our lives. And of course that doesn't ever happen or very rarely happens. Most of the decisions we make are not arrived at in that way whatsoever. And he had this amazing statistic that on average a human adult makes between 30 and 35,000 decisions every day. Mm. And obviously that's as simple as which socks am I going to wear um, to what am I going to charge this client for this project? Like, you know, there's a lot of decisions that get made, but you know, you can't possibly rationally think through all of those decisions. So how, but as, you know, people in the business of selling stuff to other people, how can we understand these heuristics better to like basically exploit them um, and sell better? Were you surprised by that number? That uh, 30,000? Yeah. Um, Yes and no. Like it sounds big, but then when you start thinking about it, it's like, yeah, look, you know, think about how many, things you see like that cross your visual field in a day and it's like millions or something and most of that stuff you never even remember. I thought it wasn't enough. (laughs) Oh, really? You thought it should have been more? I reckon if they measured architects, it would be way more. I reckon it would be more. That's why I'm fucking exhausted. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's that whole thing about, um, you know, how um, there's a fast and decision and slow decision making and one of them, obviously the heuristics is the fast decision-making pathway, but the slow decision-making pathway actually uses an enormous amount of blood sugar. Sorry, what was this? Tell me more about fast and slow decision-making. There's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which is like linked into the heuristics discussion. And it's about how you have your fast mind and your slow mind. Now your fast mind is like, you know, as soon as you learn how to drive, everything just gets stashed over in your fast mind because you can access that really quickly and you've created all those shortcuts to be able to do those things, but to like, um, you know, do 237,000 times 865 that you, you're instantly plugging into a a deeper mindset that has to then sit down and resolve that thing. And there's all these like amazing stats and figures like about how no, yeah. Like the, they did some test on some, um, I think it's some judges in Israel and they realized that, no one ever made parole before lunch. Like <laughs> ever. About this. Yeah. They just yeah. couldn't. They were so drained of blood sugar by that point. They you're were just, just like, can't lunch. make this decision. <laughs> and you're all going back to jail. Oh, so, like, it was just a, a thing that no one ever got out before mm. that time because the, the, it was too hard. You know what? We could so, probably go back and download every single Institute of Architects jury timetable and then look at the shortlisted <laughs> entrance and do that same correlation. I'm bloody going to do it. I'm oh, gonna write my a blog God, that'd it. be so great. Yeah. Definitely yeah. do that. Unless, of course, it reveals that anything I've won was not deserved. You, you yeah. only ever won um, awards in when you presented in the slot directly, <laughs> directly after lunch. After, lunch. <laughs> after handing out cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> and also it's why 
Um, well, it's why I think it is anyway. Architects wear black because we have to make so many yeah. slow decisions yep. all the time that we're, we know we're going to be exhausted and so we're saving a lot of those decisions by just going, yo, these. Well, that's the Steve Jobs thing. That's yep. why he had a uniform. Yeah. Jeans, yeah. black skivvy and sneakers yeah. because he never wanted to make use up his brain power on those decisions. That's right. Which is when you think about it, like, okay, that makes sense. But also if you're making 30,000 decisions, he's just what, saved him four decisions? <laughs> saved himself four decisions? It's hey, probably... I'm all for it. Also, he doesn't, if he spills something on himself in that skivvy, it's, you know, a lot better than white. Just correct. Say that. Mm. But let's, let's do some <laughs> mathematics on it. 30,000 decisions a day. Let's say you're sleeping eight hours a day. Um, which is maybe a bit generous, but, you know, divide that by 16 waking hours. That's 1,875 decisions an hour, which means that's 31 decisions a minute, which means it's a decision every two seconds. Yeah, I'd believe it. Hmm. I'd, I've decided, I wonder how you would I've class decided a decision. I mean, writing an email, I guess, like if I'm writing a 100-word email, I've probably made a whole bunch of decisions. Every word you made a decision. Yeah, is a decision, right? Maybe more than one decision because I'm thinking about lots of different things that sculpt, you know, not just the grammar and syntax yeah. but also the tone and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. That's why I think yeah. the modern day, like the modern work of answering a million emails a day is just bloody exhausting. Like. Mm. We never used to do this. Like 20 years ago, we weren't writing 30 well, emails a day. Kate, I, and um, I feel like there's just a general level of exhaustion that comes with that. I, um, I, I brought up at this point in the comments section, there was this sort of live comments, Bizzo, that there was a, like a discussion forum um, during the presentations. And I, um, I brought up the this answering machine message that um, Philippe Stark <laughs> has at his studio. I watched this awesome series. I can't remember what it was called, but I'm going to, I'm going to find out. Um, and it, it was basically Philippe Stark doing this um, uh, like reality TV show thing. And um, they had this scene about his studio. And when you call it, there's a recorded message and it says there's- Can you please do the accent? I'm not doing the accent. No. Do the, do the accent. It was racist. so good. At, you do the accent. <laughs> after after a few beers on after the conference, <laughs> you would be doing us all the disservice if you don't do the accent. It, the, you call the studio and it says, well, there is a time for designing and there is a time for talking. <laughs> <laughs> you have gone to the design time and then it hangs up on you. <laughs> um, for our listeners. absolutely love. Um, that the, was the my- accent was much better after the few beers. I'll have to have a few beers before each podcast. Now, thank you, work. <laughs> uh, it's, um, yeah, I took my time with it last time. That just sounded like I was um, uh, Pepe Le Pew. That's um, not yep. the same guy. But um, no, he, he made a, an excellent point that we- sort of leaving this constant back and forth of emails and you can, you know, Warwick and I was just talking about it before, I'm sitting on 580 unread emails, which is ridiculous. It's impossible to run my practice like this. But um, you have to kind of, Warwick does it in blocks of 50. He comes in and he'll answer 50 emails and then just get them out of the way. Um, I don't do that. I kind of just have this constant drip-feeding anxiety of unread emails all day. <laughs> uh, I have like 18 million Unread emails. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so the, the little, the little red dot. Anxiety. Oh, no, yeah, it's the number is, you know. It takes up your whole screen. It's meaningful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just let it go. Just I actually go. reckon like the, the, the holy mecca of the manager's business sort of goals is inbox zero. I would love to get to inbox zero and then stay there. I reckon that. Um, How would you do it? It's, it's, uh, 
it would feel super refreshing. I know, for instance, that during construction. It would last like a second. Yeah. It would just be gone. No, well, so so one of the things I do um, with my emailing is is that I park any email in relationship to a particular project in a a project folder, basically. Yeah. And Mm. that during construction, you know, you go through a big purge and make sure that all of them are filed away and stored away at the start of construction. And then I put a big effort into when I'm running those projects is I get to inbox zero in that little folder so that <coughs> it's only ever like, you know, a dozen emails in there because each week I'm kind of, you know, spending time on contract administration and clearing them out. Yeah. It's actually really relaxing because I go into the folder, there's not much that's in there and it's very easy to then get it back to a point of knowing that I've got nothing mm. more to do on that job. I've cleared right. off my plate it's actually like a really strong management process as opposed to jumping into that folder seeing 250 emails and going shit i don't even know where i don't even know what i need to do i'm i need to i can't even start so starting from a really easily manageable point actually makes the process of dealing with them even easier it's like it sort of it builds on itself i I really rate it it's great Hmm. And, and that's only obviously in a tiny little sector of my much bigger, much messier in, inbox, but on that little in that little bubble of that project, it's very manageable. Can I go back to Dan because yeah. I unfortunately missed this talk? So I would like to know what those four key what were they? Cheap the three, 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 the three, the three behavioural heuristics that he went through. They were the choice paradox, the halo effects, and halo the effects. peak end rule. What was that last one? Peak end rule. Right. The peak end rule was actually the one that we ended up discussing the most afterwards. Yeah. But the the choice paradox was, I think, best demonstrated by... The JAM study. The JAM study. Mm. Um, these psych, psychologists are great. Like they just do these crazy study studies. Great. They invent these amazing studies. And then you look back on it and go, oh, yeah, that's like a really sensible way to have tested that. But mm. imagine trying to invent them in the first oh, place. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. So these guys, a lot of respect. and they they didn't torture anybody, which is really cool. Yeah, mm. they just got a win. Jam. So they went to a supermarket on two six successive weekends, and on the first weekend, they set up one of those little tasty stall things with six jams. Right. And you could taste the jams, and then they kind of gave you a little coupon to then go and buy the jam subsequently, right after you tasted the jams. And I think the stats were that on that first weekend, 40% of people stopped and thirty to taste and 30% of people bought a jam, right? So one in three shoppers who walked past his stall all went and bought jam. On the next weekend, they increased the number of jams to 24. Ah, uh, yeah, no, that's, yeah. And they had something like 50 or 60% of people stop. Mm but only 15% of people buy. No, I think it might have been three. Well, 3%. Yeah, it was, it was a like tiny, tiny number. Yeah, yeah, a really Too low number. choices. The choice paradox. And yeah. so basically... So people just went, ah, oh, well, I can't make a decision. I'll go with nothing. The heuristic was you want some choice, but not too much choice because yep. choice is great. It makes it, it empowers people. Yep. It feels good um, to have the opportunity to make decisions about your own, you know, you know, a client of an architect about your project, but too many choices can paralyze you. Isn't this like the magic number is like no more than five? He didn't say specifically, but um, I think it is. Maybe. 
The mm. um, he used the example of you know when you're shopping for a mobile phone plan or an internet plan or something like that, and they'll display that grid on the screen and it'll have sort of the four packages in mm. front of you, and even one of them will have recommended, like you know, like they know who you are, um, yeah. and. That he was saying that even that, you know, you, if you limit it down to four choices and then you literally say, this is the one, this is the recommended choice for you at, you know, number two or number three or whatever it is, that's such a powerful way of actually driving people towards one choice or another. Um, mm-hmm. But his sort of mantra there was that you can, through this sort of process of giving people, um, like limiting it, you give them fewer but better choices. Um, yeah, there's also an associated heuristic there. I'm not sure what the actual official name for it is, but something to, along the lines of value benchmarking that in those mobile phone plans, if you have one for 50 bucks and one for 100 bucks and one for 150 bucks, a disproportionately large number of people will go for 100 bucks because yeah. they don't want to be cheap, but they also don't want the premium thing. They yeah, want yeah. The, the outlier one. effect. Yeah, it's the. Yeah. I'm pretty it's sure the it's the premium. outlier effect, it's called. And yeah, you artificially cool. price one. You have a, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. that means people choose the one in the middle, which the, is the yeah, one the that you actually want to buy. $300 bottle of champagne on the wine list. Correct. No one orders. Yep, spot on. I mean, so I think that was an interesting one, but I I don't know. Like as a takeaway, there was not a – I mean, we provide choices at various design points in our projects, mm. but we never provide a lot. And we do – reflect reflecting on it, we have had projects where – we tip into that point of maybe there's just one too many choices and the choices are like quite diverse, you know, from each, quite different from each other and have found that clients find it hard to make decisions. Um, but as a general rule, we're kind of, we've never really found ourselves coming up against that particular heuristic in a, in a negative way. Um, I don't know about you guys. Like, do you, do you feel oh, like I that f- choice I'm, paradox affects your business much? Oh, horribly. Yeah. I find it. I think if it's what's going on, which with what we see, we see a lot of people who will go through their process and they'll become really disheartened about. We've even had a client recently tell us that they thought that we would make the decisions for them. They said, look, this process has turned out to be something far different than what we expected. We thought we would come to an architect and we would be told what we wanted. Um, and I'm like, no, I, I design things and propose them to you. And if you want them, then you can we can go and build them. But I can't actually tell you what you want. Um, and I found it a, a fascinating sort of um, step into a client's, you know, that behavioural psychology thing um, and about the way in which where our role here, I used to, th- I'm, I'm sort of in this process at the moment of thinking, you know, is, is, what, is architecture about proposing a design, multiple design scenarios for people, or do you have to take a much more proactive approach and say, you've come to me for the, this uh, concept or this um, direction that I believe your design should be taken in, and then you put it all on the line and say, this is what I think you should do, uh, and don't deviate from that. We never do options. Really? Ever. Never. And we've been yelled at, like we were a recent project where someone was like, "What? I cannot believe you just showed up with one plan. And I'm like, it's not one plan, it's the plan. Oh. <laughs> 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 Mic drop. And then we fired that client. <laughs> well, this comes back to what? Because they were like, we were try- they were trying to tell us how we were supposed to deliver deliver our services. Yeah, get fucked. And I was yeah. like, Look, we've nah. had that as well. Yeah. Clients no, 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 no,
telling you, like in our fee proposal, it's clear what we're doing. And they're saying, well, we expected you to do something different based on never having employed an architect before. Yeah. I had a, um, we've got some friends who did a renovation with an architect. Um, and yeah, I, I reckon I can, I won't mention the friends, but the, the architect was Robert Simeone. I reckon there's an incredible consistency in his work. Like if you look mm-hmm. across his projects, they are all use a very similar aesthetic, dark zinc on the outside, clean white spaces on the inside, right? Yeah. This friend of ours said to us, to, as they were giving us a tour, said that when you go to Robert, you know what you get. Yeah. But he was very flexible about planning and was quite open to like, you know, pushing and pulling and, and, mm. and help and allowing us to like, Get a, have a lot of decision-making power in the layout of the house. Um, and I, was, I, I went away from that conversation going, yeah, and you can see that in his work. Like you would never mistake um, one of his projects for something that wasn't his project because there's a very consistent aesthetic to him. Um, and that I think ties into what we're talking about. And I can see that in your work as well, Kate, that aesthetically there's a very strong consistency from project to project, which we don't have in our portfolio. And that's because we, in ours, we offer choice to our clients. Yeah, see, yeah. And I reckon it's horses for courses. I don't reckon yeah. there is one way, right way of doing it. I reckon and some this, architects just say, this is the the way. Yeah. That's how they operate. This is and our you, way that you've hired us for. But your right. thing that we've spoken about many times, you're like, uh, you, when we've talked about like, what is everyone's thing? What is their thing that they're marketing? That's it for you. Yeah, really? and that is what we tell our clients as well, yeah. that um, that's one of the things that you get from us. Um, so I don't think there is a right way to your question, Mick. I reckon it mm. depends, and it not just doesn't just depend on the architect. It also depends on the client. Totally. Absolutely. Like I think in, in yoga, yeah. Yeah. I love going to a yoga class and not have, the only decision I make is deciding to rock up because yeah. from that point onwards, yeah. my body is in the hands of my yoga teacher and there's an enormous like yeah. relief in just having someone else look after me. Hmm. for an hour. Yeah. Whereas and if they so, said, now you have the choice of three poses. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, and in fact, when they say, or, you know, or you can try this harder version, it's like, oh God, now I have to decide whether or not I'm going to try the harder uh, version or the not yeah, hard yeah. version. Um, and probably some clients for architects would be in the similar boat. They just want to be told, they want to be taken on the journey mm. and mm. be told what they want. And other clients would want a much, much more impact on the decision-making process. And I think there's there's a spectrum here. We're talking about different clients who, uh, and and people and clients that change midstream. You know, people who say, yeah, no, we're very happy to be taken on the journey, and um, and then ultimately um, not that they when they get um, stuck yeah, into when the, the building process. Starts, yeah. yeah. Mm. So I reckon the the trick there is becoming very good at people management and understanding yeah. how to read signals and know when you're supposed to ask for opinions and when you're not going to ask for opinions. Um, And so, for instance, one of the things we've discovered is that clients are often incredibly, um, and in some ways rightfully so, very opinionated about appliances as an example. And part of the reason for that is, is like let's say we go and recommend a particular, you know, it's a Fisher and Pikler or it's a Miele or it's a whatever the product is. We say, here's the oven. If you actually look at that range of ovens, there's probably a dozen different ovens all mm. looking identical to each other yeah. that do different things on the inside. And basically I don't have an opinion about whether or not it's going to do this or that function. The only people who have an opinion are our clients. So we just say, look, here is a range that we think will work for the, the kitchen. Um, you go to 
the shop and go and choose exactly which one from the range you want and at which price point you want to spend and yeah. let us know. Yeah. Go yeah, that's what we do as well. Yeah. That's what we do as well, but we've found that even has caused us an enormous amount of work. Sometimes <laughs> when they times. come back with one of those, what are those farmhouse kitchens, um, stoves, the Argus. Agar. Yeah. Oh, the cooker things. Yeah, oh, Agar or Agar. Yeah. Client wanting an Agar. Jesus. Uh, they don't work with contemporary architecture, people. Stop choosing them. I mean, stop demanding them. (laughs) Yeah. I need it. I always think I'll add this to the, um, to the terms and conditions about what oven you're allowed to choose, but (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's going to work somehow. But look, this all ties right back into, uh, Anthony Martin's, uh, Anthony Martin's, uh, first presentation, which you should go back and watch work because I think you missed. Um, yes. Which is all about pre design, which takes up 10% of his total fee. And he's a bit like you, Kate. He doesn't turn up and provide you with plan options. He provides the plan, mm. but that plan is already worked out over multiple meetings with the client as diagram after diagram and all about um, site analysis and uh, areas that have sort of been arrived at through a client's brief and then he sort of attaches these beautiful diagrams to each room and um, it was a it was a little sort of pre-designed masterclass that he delivered mm. there. So I'd encourage anybody who is working in the residential field especially to uh, review that one at their leisure. Um I don't know how I got back to that. We were talking about choice. Oh, yeah, like what you said, sorry, yeah, um, about turning up with a almost a foregone conclusion where you're not presenting it as this is one option of a million that is available. We're talking about this plan because it's the logical and best solution for the site and hopefully you've somehow brought yeah. the client along with you to that conclusion. Yeah. I guess, look, I <laughs> It, I think it's a really interesting field of discussion and I'm happy to accept that there is no right way. And sometimes I'm actually envious of the architect who can, who doesn't provide options because it's in some ways easier, right? Much less susceptible to being taken down a path that you go, actually, you know what? I don't like the way this plan is headed because it's now having these effects three-dimensionally that I'm not comfortable with, but I'm now stuck with it, for, you know, for instance, because I provided the bloody choice and yada, yada. Um, it's an interesting discussion because it ties so tightly into design methodology yeah. and how, you know, design evolves and which and how, whether or not you're designing from the outside in or the inside out or from the plan 3D or from the section 3D. or all that stuff. I if think the it's, process it's highly is variable. Linear, you know, sometimes you can promote a plan, develop it, work out that it's not right and have to then go back and what do you say? Oh, this yeah, one that I and if there's only one you. of them, that thing can just evolve and you're only discussing one, whereas if you go off onto a tangent with option two and that's the client's choice and it starts to be a real shit fight and you know that the answer is actually back here, you're stuck, you know, because you've Ooh, like yeah. they're in the design process now and you've got to play this thing where you go, okay, well, your idea hasn't worked or the thing that you wanted hasn't worked. I mean, yeah, there's obviously a better been, way to do that. Whereas if there's just the one in the middle and you, like, they're still... You know, I, never, I never present a plan that I'm not happy to take through to the finish. No, but I think sometimes they just don't yes, work that's out. Key. You know what I mean? Well, that's sometimes possible. Yeah. W- and if it- there's only one and you're just giving feedback to that one, everyone's collaborating on the yeah. same one. But who pays for it when it doesn't work out? That's another interesting question. And if it goes in this direction. 
Well, yeah, I guess it's on us because we've chosen the one we think is good. Yeah, we pay for it. Speaking of things we love here at In Detail, have I mentioned how much we love Arky Team? Guys. We love it too. And uh, I've got to say the uh, the online forum for me is the absolute um, best part of Arky Team. I love uh, how people are, are contributing and uh, letting their guard down and, and it's a real insider's sort of uh, view on uh, what's happening in the architectural world. I think that actually can, for me, it contributes to the overall role that Architeam has as this amazing incubator for small practice um, that allows small architecture businesses to emerge and grow and succeed. Thanks, Architeam. Thanks, Architeam. One of our favourite clients a couple two of our favorite clients who i think actually listen to this podcast so um hey favorites um hey favorites um, <laughs> you're the best <laughs> you are the best we they engaged us to renovate their house and it was a house built in the 1990s which had some limitations associated with it on a rural rural block um and we proceeded down this pathway of you know giving choice and evolving this master plan and it, it kept on kind of evolving over time but it actually got to a point where we realized as the designers um that we weren't it, it wasn't going to achieve like we had to do so much to the original house in order to achieve what was becoming loud and clear the main briefing requirements that we actually had to scrap it and knock down the house. Mm. And so we basically went back to them and say, look, we feel like we can proceed down this path, but we think it's probably going to be a compromised outcome for the things you're trying to get the house to do. And if you really want to achieve those things, then we think that we have to like basically start from scratch and rethink the thing from um, a, a clear site. Um, and they ended up coming back to us and saying, yep, that's what we're going to do. Really and which is one of the wonderful things about them that they were very trusting about that whole process about saying, yeah, we can see actually now that, now that you've pointed that out to us and have been, you know, brave enough to say that this thing isn't actually working, um, we back you and we, we reckon that, yeah, we're going to have to um, start from scratch to achieve this outcome that we wanted to achieve. One yeah. of the things about New Resident that's been really interesting is um, that we're designed, we're, re- we're renovating a character home and maintaining all the trees as well as many trees as we can on the site. And being the key decision maker in the program and then matching that program, that set outcome that we haven't controlled because we didn't put the tree there and we didn't design the original house and we didn't face it a certain way. So we've got like a set number of parameters that we need to respond to in order to get the best outcome for everybody. And then we use the list to determine which one. So we're going backwards, you know, we let the project comes first and then we match it with the, with the person Hmm. or people. They get to go, no, I, I do fit into that. Actually, that makes sense. And so in that way, the existing house, the character house is the boss. Yes. Whereas if Mm. we were to take that existing house to anyone on that list and go, uh, tell us what you think of this plan. They'd be like, oh, I probably would have a bigger powder room and this and, this and whatever. And, and, and just yeah, those couple of decisions would mean yeah. it would be bowled over. Yeah, yeah. Because they, you know, can't put themselves second to the house, if it's that makes sense. Good diagram. Whereas when they buy it as a property, hmm. as a property purchase, no problemo. Yeah. That there's he- not those certain things that are perfect, if that makes sense. 
Let's Warren. get on to the next heuristic, shall we? Yeah. We've got the halo effect as our. Oh, I love the halo stuff. effect. Any uh, Dan used an uh, example of the Nike shocks uh, as a pair of shoes, um, which didn't sell terribly well, and they were many hundreds of dollars. Um, but what they did was create this halo effect around the shoe, which promoted the sales of the other lower cost Nike shoes that were available in the shops, the $79 trainers that uh, did sell very well on the back of Nike being this brand who was willing to put in millions of dollars into R&D and to create these crazy looking shoes that looked like they had 30 shock absorbers in them. Um, And that sort of bring, what am I to say, you know, you've got these big shiny North Star projects that tell people who you are and what you believe. Um, and that not just sort of, you know, that's not only valuable if it sells your major projects, but also if it then has that halo effect to the other projects that you might be working on. Mm. I thought that was a really interesting example because, you know, the halo effect, of the, you know, is that people judge a book by its cover that a beautiful person is more likely to be trusted mm. or is more likely to be thought attractive. And that the psychological experiment that um, Dan used was that one from, a you know, uh, like a long, long time ago, 80 years ago or something, um, maybe not that long, but about soldiers being judged by um, their superiors on a, on a range of criteria. And they discovered that there was this direct, there was this correlation that if someone rated really highly in one of the 10 criteria, they were disproportionately likely to rate very highly in all the other criteria. Yeah. Mm. And if they were really, if they were rated really lowly in one criteria, then they were going to be rated badly across all the criteria much more in a, in a much more regular fashion than they should have been statistically. And so the opposite of the halo effect is the horn effect. So um, if you are really good at one thing, you're more likely to be thought as being really good at something else. And I, I, I like this example, the Nike example, because it was kind of, it, it took this kind of sideways step about, well, how would you apply this to your benefit in business? Yeah. Um, but I disagree with it. Like in the way I want to run my business. So hmm. my colleague Owen, who came across with us to the, uh, to the conference when we watched it at Warwick's, um, was saying that, you know, you've got, he, he found it really interesting that you, that this halo effect sort of suggests that you have uh, projects for show and projects for go, that your projects for show are the ones that sort of set up who you are and mm. really, you know, they're your, what do you call them, the big shiny North Star ones. Um, and then you probably. Well, Dan explicitly go. said that. Yeah. Yeah, that's what so, you do. You set it up. You do like your meat and veg projects yeah. to make the money and then you do these like loss-leading shiny projects to get yeah. the loss-leading projects in. But as Owen but pointed they, out, we don't have any in. of the second category. We, You know, everything we're doing is projects for show. And yeah. Uh, that's yeah. what, which is the way I like to run the practice. You know, I don't consider any any project on the books to be one that just, you know, we just churn through to make cash, um, which is a cynical way of looking at it. But um, Eric and I articulated that for ourselves very, very early on before we even really had a proper strategic plan that we knew we didn't want to do that. We didn't mm. want to have profitable but boring bread and butter projects that would then finance fun, non-profitable projects that we wanted to take. We wanted to make every project good or great mm. um, and would therefore put the effort into 
every single project to make them a show like those those north stars um but maybe a corollary to this is maybe new resident is an example of you go to whispering smith yes it is my friend for the the <laughs> highly evolved and highly responsive design that perfectly suits you because you're part of the journey the bespoke or if suit. you just want to get into the product mm. here's this other thing we can sell you that is you know not as tailored but is still beautiful and is still um, a great design because we have created it mm. we nike have created this incredible shoe we still rate the shoe it's just not the $200 shoe it's the $100 shoe well, it's just the shoe that we chose to make, not the shoe that you told us to make. And it's probably, well, and like fundamentally, it's going to be cheaper and less time consuming than going on the full journey and That's tailoring right. everything from scratch, right? Yeah. And you like our shoes. We're Nike. Yeah. You, know? you already yeah. like the shoe. And um, you already like the shoes. You buy our shoes. Here's, here's a little, one. Here's Do a you like secret it? But I actually think the halo uh, effect is what we're doing when we're doing advocacy. Ah, yeah, of course. Because we're going out there and being like, we're championing good design, we're doing all these things and people are going, hmm. Yep. And I'm hearing people call us up and go, I heard you speak or I saw that article you wrote yep. or which you're doing is you, you guys are doing this as well. Absolutely. Um, we love doing it. We Firstly, we like doing that stuff because it's fun and yeah. it's um, good to do and, you know, brings value to the community. But secondly, there is definitely, you know, we've, we've had clients find us through uh, a bit, you know, a piece in the paper or, mm. um, or, or something online where, that's got nothing to do with designing houses. But they like, they, yeah. they extrapolate from reading those things about you, what you might be like to work with. And I think that that is really important in marketing. Oh, in yep. marketing who you are because yeah. you can't we can market a house but we're not necessarily that's our end result but it's not about the process that we went through with the client mm. you know what I mean whereas I feel like all of that other stuff that you're doing is is trying to explain what you might be like to work with you need that halo effect. well given that we're drawing close to the end of one hour of chatbots uh what about we talk quickly about the peak end rule and, and then close and then close because yeah. there are, you know, 20 other <laughs> that we've got notes on for that presented as well at this conference, but you're just <laughs> going to have to watch it yourself people because it was great. Um, peak end rule work. Have you got a summary? So the, um, this one's a great rule and the most thought provoking in some ways. Yeah. So the way he, Dan presented it was is that um, he started off by saying that people say they want experiences and the, the consequence of that is, is as service providers, we therefore respond to that by going, all right, we're going to create, a, we're going to provide you with an exceptional end-to-end -end experience. But actually what people want is memories, and the peak end rule rears its head in that way when you start asking the question, well, how do you create a memory? Um, and the answer to that is, is not necessarily creating an exceptional end-to-end -end experience. Mm. And the test that they used um, or the psychological experiment that they used to demonstrate this was pe where people were brought into a room and played some sounds um, through their earphones of really annoying sounds and then ask people to rate the overall annoyingness of the sounds that they listen to. 
and they found that the most, the closest relationship between the, the annoyingness score that people gave was the highest peak, like the most annoying, most loud and obnoxious sound that they played and the quality of the sounds towards the end of the little thing that they had to listen to. So it was the peaks and it was the end. So the consequence of this was what you need to do is provide an adequate service all the way through with some really exceptional highs Mm -hmm. and a great finish. And um, he gave these two really beautiful examples. One was there's a, you know, fancy restaurant here in Melbourne, Vieux de Monde. Um, and as soon as he mentioned them, I was like, ah, I know exactly what he was going to say because I've been there and know what happens at the end of the meal. And he says, typically at the end of the meal, what happens? You have a terrible thing that happens. You have to pay. <laughs> and there it's, it's pretty cheap, I imagine. It is not cheap. It's not oh, cheap of you to mind at all. But at a restaurant, the last thing that happens is you pay, which it basically leaves this nasty taste in your mouth. Yeah. Um, and so what they do is, is you pay, and obviously they're on, they're on the, the top floor of um, the Rialto building. You then get in the elevator to go back down. And I think on the ground floor when you leave, they hand you a little gift basket and it, or a little gift package. And in that gift package is your breakfast for the next morning. Oh, no way. Some brioche and some granola and some like, you know, little biscuits and things, you know, it's amazing. And so you finish on a high and then that then influences your your memory, not your experience, mm. but your memory of the whole event. Yeah. Right. And then Dan said, you don't even need to go to Vietnamon to experience that because every kid anywhere knows <laughs> that the quality of the birthday party is entirely dependent on the quality of the party bags. Mm. And if you get a good party bag, it was a great party. And I was like, oh, of course, it's like, you know, this is built into our DNA. The peak end rule is like something we all expect Every from an incredibly young age. Childhood yep. has experience with it. And then using that to then influence your, uh, the way you're setting up your business or your, your, your client experience is that we're not necessarily required or it's not necessarily even a great idea to try and create a seamless good experience for the client from day one to the end when and he said it was that's a waste of time what you want to do is provide as you said an adequate service or a good professional service um, and then a couple of times during that he said you want to give them a 15 out of 10 experience where Mm. you know and we were talking about the architectural process. And in fact, we suffer from the same thing that most restaurants suffer from. What is the very last thing that happens on a project, Kate? This is All a their test. money's gone. They move no, their no. furniture in, we photograph it. No, before that, what's the last thing, the last service that you provide? Contract admin. It's boring. Yeah, and what's the end of contract admin? Defects. Defects. Mm. So it's even in the bloody name that it's the very last defect. thing that we do is we the name of defects out. last it's night. I was like, we've got to change this. We've got to change it. Bad. I completely agree. Call yep. it the punch list, All right. which is what everyone calls it. Listeners, you know? punch list. That's not bad. But <laughs> yeah, even well, that's a little bit. Call it that. Yeah, come on, we'll make a no. punch list. It sounds like, you know, we're, f- we're, rip- like we're, we're finishing it off. It's like it's a way better way. Nah, I still don't like it. I reckon the, we should have a listener uh, write in for a new name for defects and see if people oh, can uh, come yeah, up okay. with it. Hit us up on Insta or it's a shame on the website. It's in every contract and. <laughs> yep, send us. No, we're not. We're not. 
We're not on Instagram. Um, <laughs> oh, I us, am. <laughs> oh, you are. Yeah, we are. Or hit us up at, um, in detail. Yeah. Um, uh, Do we not have an in detail Insta for our, for our podcast? That just has photos of us on Zoom. <laughs> Here we Everyone are on Zoom would again. <laughs> follow that in a heartbeat. Um, on Twitter, which is um, at In Detail Show, um, or yep. on our website um, as well. And there's an email, I think. Um, but we were talking about a more productive way of, like, not just rebranding a fundamentally sort of negatively focused experience at the end yep. of the project. And that was the photo shoot about making that a celebration of the project. And there's something you do, Mick, that I really like that we are going to, I think, maybe start doing, sure which do. is? Yeah, well, we invite our clients to be part of the photo shoot at the end of the project. And um, we often get a photo of the client sitting in their um, bench or um, having walked through a particular part of the room. And um, we sometimes use that in publication. Sometimes we don't. Um, sometimes it's uh, for just to send to the clients and say, here you go, here's a professional shot. In fact, Ben Hosking did one for us on the last project he shot for us and, oh, um, and just sent it through last week and the clients loved it. So it's, so it's basically a like a family bag. portrait in their yeah. brand new home, which That's is right. like, I think like it's a really lovely, because the, the end doesn't have to be the, I think the, the cool thing about the 15 out of 10 experience is it's relative. It's not like about delivering. It doesn't have to be as massive as delivering a project 20% under budget mm. or 10 months ahead of schedule or anything like that. It can just be, well, what am I expecting from this photo shoot? Not much. Oh, wait a minute. My architect's inviting me in to be part of it, to see the house all doled up for magazines and then to sit down and have a professional portrait, which people get with their families occasionally anyway. And it's like this little gift. It's like, it's a nice, way to finish off. I think that would be a 15 out of 10 experience. Yeah, Hmm. it would be. It really would be. It also, I mean, it's dangerous to try and do things as well. Like, oh, I'll meet you on a Saturday or something. They never remember that stuff ever. And, in fact, they'll start booking meetings on Saturdays because they think that that's fine, you know, like you do it once and then they start expecting it. No, we never do that. Yeah, yeah, no, we've made that mistake a few times. But, like, it's not, it's, I think that is something better. It's something that only we can do, you know, to organise that level of awesomeness with the photo. I think that's that's a really good example. And on that note, um, let's provide our listeners with a 15 out of 10 experience by all. Um, by buying each one of them a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> That's what look under your chairs. By our sponsors, future sponsors, potentially. We're in discussions. We sent, we sent some messages to yeah, um, Elon. Elon. On Twitter. Yeah. He's getting back to us any day now. Yeah, surely. We're assuming it's all cool. Yep. Enjoy your Teslas, people, and we'll see you next week for more in detail. Well, thanks for joining us uh, in episode three of season two of In Detail. Um, I really enjoyed in, uh, having a deep dive into the Archie Team con- conference there. Um, Warwick, Kate, what do you think? Oh, look, I, you know, I don't make a big deal of it, but potentially our best episode yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, every, well every episode is the best episode yet, obviously. <laughs> I think that's really great. I also think all this chit chat about the cognitive bias, I think is a really important thing and, you know, perhaps has given us some ideas for some future episodes. It has indeed. Um, Get up. As all, uh, yes. As always, you can um, check out the full archive of our um, website, sorry, of our podcast on our website, 
www.indetail.show. If you're just joining us for the first time with this episode, um, we have obviously season one and episodes thus far in season two archived there. Um, you can listen to us wherever you get your favourite podcasts, none of your crappy podcasts, only the favourite ones mm-hmm. um, where we are there, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. cetera. Um, our Twitter handle, if you're interested in reaching out in that space, is In Detail Show. Um, music by gorgeous, the gorgeous Sean Gorman. Um, and sponsored- the gorgeous, Kate. Hmm? Does he go by the gorgeous or can you just sort of yell out gorgeous on, on a street in Perth? I think it's more important that you spend at least 10 seconds discussing this part of his name every time you mention him. It's not really about what you say or how you say it, just the length of the time that you discuss yeah. his name. But, yeah. Kate, is he, is he actually attractive? <laughs> I want to know how can – we, can we change the logo, the in-detail sort of logo thing with our faces? He's, uh, it's, he's hard to look at. You look at him and your eyes are just melting. Is he lit you know? from within, Kate? Hmm? Is he lit from within? He is lit from within. It's yep. correct. It's like yep. looking at the sun. Yeah, it is. Um, <coughs> I want to I want to thank Streamtime and Archie team, our generous sponsors for this season. I know you guys weren't going to do it. I just want to. I'm sure they're all very attractive as well, our other sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not leave yeah. them out of the loop. Gorgeous Streamtime. <laughs> <laughs> Our sponsors are definitely on board um, because of our professionalism. That's right. Mm. That's what they say mm. every time. Mm. Excellent. We'll see you uh, next step. See you, folks. See you guys. Bye.